he was charming and good-looking and taps into our most inner fear that you don't really know the person next to you because nobody thought that he was capable of these things. They all parted their hair in the middle. They all weighed about the same. They all had basically uh, dark hair. To a certain extent, they, they looked like they were sisters. People were freaked. You know, we didn't have murders and bad people in Aspen or, or the Roaring Fork Valley. He, he wasn't manacled, he wasn't confined or restrained or anything. And he just jumped out the courthouse window. You know, here's a guy who escaped from a Colorado prison not once but twice. The one thing you, you'll, you'll never <clears throat> get a great feeling for unless you were an investigator in some of these is just how spooky this guy was. Normal people are not thinking about people like him tracking them and hunting them, but that's exactly what was going on. Bundy was a hunter. So, um, this gets into, um, I escaped twice in, in Colorado, and the first time was just jumping out of the window, um, and then they put him in the uh, kind of maximum security cell, and so this is him describing to our investigator um, back then um, kind of what went on. There was a plate welded across the top uh, of his cell, and that's where he uh, kind of got out. And it goes into quite a bit of detail. Um, That's Steve Mallory, the deputy district attorney in Colorado's 9th Judicial District. As he talks, he's gesturing toward documents he's pulled from a small cardboard box in the district's main office in downtown Glenwood Springs, a popular Colorado resort town about 150 miles west of Denver. Some of the papers are loose. Some are gathered in files. They're dingy, yellowed with time. Forty years in a box, we'll do that. I think in the photos here, we have... There were photos, too, which Mallory pulled from one of those old yellow Kodak envelopes. Remember getting your pictures developed? Well, there are about a dozen of them here. Glossy prints about the size of index cards. And as Mallory lined them up in front of me, I could see that they featured seemingly mundane things. A squat brown brick building. A photo of a door at the end of a hallway. A view of Glenwood Springs on a winter day. A footprint left in the snow with a ruler next to it for scale. Altogether, they almost seemed boring until Mallory started explaining. So those are some footprints in the snow that he left. Uh, it snowed the day that he escaped. Mm -hmm. This is kind of actually almost right out this window. Mm -hmm. um, you can see the hotel. Oh, yeah. That squat, brown brick building was the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs. Mallory said it's since been torn down. But for the better part of 1977, it was home to Ted Bundy. Yes, that Ted Bundy, now known as one of the most notorious serial killers in U.S. history. 
Bundy was being held at the jail as his trial neared. What would have been his first murder trial, actually? It was centered around the mysterious death of a Michigan nurse almost two years earlier, who had disappeared from her Snowmass Hotel outside of Aspen while on vacation there in 1975. I'll get to that later. That door, in the other picture I described, that was the door to the jailer's apartment, where Bundy found himself on the night of December 30th, 1975. It was the night Bundy had squeezed himself through a hole in his cell ceiling for the final time, crawling above his cell block and through the bowels of the jail until he was above the jailer's apartment. With the jailer and his wife out to the movies, Bundy busted in through the ceiling, changed into street clothes, and walked out the jail's front door. The footprints photographed in the snow, those were assumed to be Bundy's. He supposedly left them as he set out looking for a car, which he found and stole and drove out of Glenwood Springs. After it broke down, he hitchhiked to Denver. These events on December 30th, 1977, marked Bundy's second escape from Colorado law enforcement within six months. It also became the precursor to his most deadly rampage yet. In the next three episodes of this podcast, I'm going to delve into Bundy's 1970s killing spree, which spanned six states and left at least an estimated 30 young women dead. We'll talk about how Colorado's picturesque ski towns became the hunting ground for a killer, how Bundy managed to slip out of state custody not once, but twice. And we'll touch on two Colorado homicides that remain unsolved, but have always stirred rumors. Could Bundy have been involved? I'm Erin Udell, and you're listening to Hunted, Inside Ted Bundy's Trail of Terror. On February 15th, 1978, A police officer in Pensacola, Florida, observed a driver acting strange as he pulled a Volkswagen Beetle out of an empty restaurant parking lot around 1 a.m. The officer called in the car's plates, confirming that the Beetle in front of him had been reported stolen. So he pulled over and arrested the driver, a clean-shaven man in his early 30s, with a crop of brown, wavy hair. After first giving police a fake name, The man refused to identify himself, and it went on for days. The Florida papers even labeled him a mystery man. He would ultimately give it up and tell his real name to a Pensacola investigator named Norman Chapman. Theodore Robert Bundy, he told him. Chapman would later reveal to reporters that that meant nothing to him at the time. Who's Theodore Robert Bundy? But soon enough, He'd find out. He'd see Bundy's face plastered on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list. And he'd learn that thousands of miles away, across the Pacific Northwest and in states like Utah and Colorado, Theodore Robert Bundy was becoming known as a monster. One who had left a trail of missing and murdered women that stretched back for years. 
In January 1974, someone broke into the basement apartment of Karen Sparks, an 18-year-old student at the University of Washington in Seattle. He bludgeoned and sexually assaulted her. She'd remained unconscious for more than a week. A few weeks later, in the early morning hours of February 1st, 1974, Linda Ann Healy, another UW undergrad, vanished from a house she shared with roommates near campus. And it just kept going. Donna Manson, 19, went missing from Evergreen State College, 65 miles away in Olympia, Washington, on February 21st. Susan Rancourt, 18, vanished from the Central Washington State College campus on April 17th. Roberta Parks, 22, vanished from Oregon State University on May 6th. 22-year-old Brenda Ball disappeared after leaving a tavern in a small town outside of Seattle on June 1st. June 11th, George Ann Hawkins, another 18-year-old, disappeared while walking to her University of Washington sorority house in Seattle's University District. July 14, 1974, two women disappeared from the crowded beaches of Lake Sammamish, just east of Seattle, 18-year-old Denise Nasland and 23-year-old Janice Ott. And the reason why a lot of these women were vanishing, simply there and then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden not there, it was because he was planning it to be that way. That's Kevin Sullivan a Louisville minister turned true crime writer. He's written four books about Ted Bundy since 2006. You know, he made, he made some mistakes along the lines that kind of would come back and bite him later when he did that boastful double abduction in Washington State on July 14, 1974 at Lake Sammamish when 40,000 people were there. Mm-hmm. He got Janice Ott in the morning and he got, came back and got Denise Oliverson in the oh, afternoon. That- I mean, not Denise Olivson, I mean yeah, Denise yeah. Naslund. Denise Naslund in the afternoon. And it was a double abduction. And the thing that he did was he announced himself as Ted. You know, it, it maybe would have seemed to Bundy that that was smart to do, but it's the little things that you lay on the ground that are right. going to be picked up later by the investigators. And that yeah. was one of them. After the Lake Sammamish disappearances, police have their first leads as they start to connect this unusual string of vanishing teens and co-eds. They know they're looking for a man named Ted, driving a brown or tan Volkswagen Beetle. And they know his type. Photos of these women are published in the newspapers. They're young, attractive, many with long, dark brown hair. Word spread, and police scramble to track this Ted down. King County detectives in northwest Washington checked more than 400 Volkswagen registrations in nearby counties. A police sketch was circulated. Witnesses from Lake Sammamish were even hypnotized. But no luck. No Ted. Weeks after they go missing, the remains of Denise Nasland and Janice Ott are found near Lake Sammamish State Park. And stories are all over the newspapers in the Pacific Northwest. Then, all of a sudden, the disappearances stop. More on that after this break. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably like me. 
fascinated with decades-old crimes and unsolved Colorado mysteries. Putting episodes like this together, tracking people down, conducting interviews, digging through documents, it's fascinating. And it's one of my favorite parts about my job here at The Coloradoan. It's also a lot of work. Work that's made possible by Coloradoan subscribers. If you'd like to hear more true crime and local history storytelling, including things like this podcast, let my bosses know by getting a digital subscription to our work today. If you purchase one at coloradoan.com slash podcast offer, it'll link back to this podcast and show that our readers and listeners support and value work like this. The more support we get, the more chances I have to dig into cases that matter to you. The more chances I'll have to unearth local mysteries and tell stories that deserve to be told. Getting a digital subscription to the Coloradoan not only supports the 17 journalists in this newsroom, it also unlocks a ton of neat local offerings. Subscribers also get access to a video, story, and archived photos specific to this very Bundy project. If you didn't catch that link earlier, it's coloradoan.com slash podcast offer. So consider subscribing today. And to all of our subscribers out there, thank you. You know, he drove himself out of every area. He had to leave Washington State because of the investigation. It was just too hot. That's Kevin Sullivan again. And he's talking about Ted Bundy's movements in 1974. Now, 45 years later, we know that the mysterious Ted terrorizing college campuses and snatching women from beaches on the Pacific Northwest that year was Ted Bundy. He was 27 at the time a native of Tacoma, Washington, and a University of Washington graduate. He had majored in psychology there and worked at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. He had a girlfriend at the time, too, a young divorcee and mother named Elizabeth Klepfer. After graduating from college, Bundy worked on Washington Governor Daniel Evans's successful 1972 re-election campaign. He was even making a little name for himself in Washington State's Republican Party. And all the while, he was abducting and murdering women. Like Kevin said, when the investigation into those disappearances heated up, Ted took off. In August 1974, Bundy moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, where he had just been accepted into the University of Utah's law school. And just like in Washington and Oregon, a strange pattern of disappearances started to emerge. He goes to Utah. He goes to law school there. He's like a kid in a candy store. He's in class about three days of the first semester of law school. Yet he's able to maintain his grades, but he's not there. He's out killing women. He'd ramped up the number of murders. Uh, He was just, again, like I say, a kid in the candy store. On October 2nd, 1974, 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox went missing in Holiday, Utah, a suburb of Salt Lake City. About two weeks later, Melissa Smith, the 17-year-old daughter of Midvale, Utah's police chief, vanished after leaving a local pizza parlor. 
Her body was found in a nearby mountainous area, 10 days later. That Halloween, 17-year-old Laura Ann Aim disappeared from Lehigh, Utah. Her body was found the following month. November 8th, 18-year-old Carol Durant escapes an attempted kidnapping in Murray, Utah, after a man posing as a police officer lures her into his car and tries to handcuff her. She gets free and reports the incident to police immediately. Later that same day, 15 miles away, 17-year-old Deborah Kent vanishes after leaving a school play in Bountiful, Utah. Like in Washington and Oregon, most of these young Utah victims, except for Carol DeRanch, who escaped, vanished without a trace. If their remains were found, they were typically nude or partially clothed and left in secluded mountainous or wooded areas. It was a pattern. And listening now, all these years later, it screamed serial killer, right? But back then, serial killer wasn't really a term. Mass killings did happen, sure, but the country was just starting to take notice of notable sprees in the 1970s. That was when Charles Manson was on trial for the Sharon Tate murders. The Zodiac Killer was still active, terrorizing and teasing the police and the public in California. The decade would also see the Son of Sam in New York, John Wayne Gacy in Illinois, the Hillside Strangler in Los Angeles. Police in Virginia are investigating the execution-style murder of five women in the past 11 days. They don't know yet whether there is a pattern to these crimes, but the murder of people in series, or serial murders, has police departments across this country worried. As Dennis Murphy reports tonight, they're now working together to develop new leads. That's a clip from NBC News in 1984, after Ted Bundy's spree. I just want to be clear, the specific murders that they mention in this clip are not Bundy's, but the work of other serial killers. They call it the work of the Green River Killer, probably one man who has murdered 13 young women near Seattle. Case unsolved. On the Gulf Coast, two drifters, Otis Toole and Henry Lee Lucas, have confessed to the killings of more than 200 women and children. Gerald Stano says he murdered 31 women in Florida. Motiveless, random killings, sometimes thousands of miles apart. A Justice Department investigator calls it terrifying, an epidemic. They're known as serial killers, and according to law enforcement officials, there are at least 35 of them roaming the country now, stalking victims. You know, we have 5% of the world's population, but we have 67% of the world's documented serial killers since statistics started being kept like a century ago. Um, And at any given time, the FBI estimates that there are 25 to 50 active serial killers operating in the United States. All of that is super chilling, but the name that most people know is Bundy. That's Joe Berlinger, an Academy Award-nominated filmmaker and producer who recently directed Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile, a movie chronicling Ted Bundy's crimes. In the film, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival on January 26th, Bundy is played by Zac Efron. The story is told through the eyes of Bundy's girlfriend during his spree, Elizabeth Klepfer, played by Lily Collins. The film doesn't have a distributor, so there's no word yet on when it'll be released in theaters. Berlinger also directed and produced Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes a four-part docuseries that premiered on Netflix on January 24th, the 30th anniversary of, spoiler alert, 
Bundy's execution. I wanted to pop in and say that those statistics Joe just gave, that 67% of the world's serial killers have come out of the U.S., and that 25 to 50 serial killers are active in the country at any given time, I've had a little trouble confirming those. I asked the FBI, but since I was working on this podcast primarily during the beginning of 2019, my request fell during the government shutdown, and they weren't able to process it. They did say it doesn't sound like an FBI statistic, but they couldn't say for sure. I didn't find a percentage, but Dr. Mike Amat, a forensic psychology professor at Radford University, was quoted as saying that the U.S. is responsible for producing the world's most serial killers. But that could also just be because we document these cases more and have more open records. Amat also said that serial killers in the U.S. are on the decline, partly because of how Americans live their lives differently than past decades. In the 60s and 70s and 80s, a lot of people hitchhiked, getting into strangers' cars, the perfect situation for a serial killer. And kids are kept on tighter leashes today, too. They don't typically walk to the store alone or go places without their parents. There are less opportunities for serial killers to come across victims nowadays, Amont said. But that wasn't the case in the 70s, when Bundy was making his way through Washington, Oregon, Utah, and next, Colorado. Several of his victims were known to have gone with him willingly, at first. He's been widely reported as a good-looking guy, so he'd feign some sort of injury, have a fake cast on, or be using crutches. And he'd see a girl alone, ask her for help loading something into his car, and when he got a chance, he'd incapacitate her abduct her, sexually assault her, and kill her. Having done 25 years of true crime filmmaking in film and television, you know, uh, documentary filmmaking, um, you know, I've spent a lot of time with bad people. And, uh, you know, it's my observation, and I think this is what goes to the center of what Bundy is about. It's, you know, even Bundy himself says that, you know, killers don't come out of the shadows with long fangs dripping in blood, meaning people who do evil are not easily identifiable in society. Maybe that's why, more than 40 years after his crimes and 30 years after his death, we're still talking about Ted Bundy. Berlinger was at the helm of two Bundy projects that are premiering this year. Kevin Sullivan, the writer you heard from earlier in this episode, was asked to participate in 12 Bundy documentaries in 2018. Here's Berlinger again. It's pretty amazing that, um, that people are still interested in this. Um, you know, and I also think there's a whole new generation that has barely, you know, just generally vaguely knows this celebrity serial killer named Ted Bundy but don't know the details. So I think there's a whole new audience for it. But I think people are interested. Um, just for some reason, Bundy has risen to the top because... He was charming and good-looking and taps into our most inner fear that you don't really know the person next to you because nobody thought that he was capable of these things and a lot of clues were missed. And he seemingly had the world by, you know, by its tail or whatever the phrase is. Um, There's something else, at least I think. There's this unbelievability to it all that a man was able to slink through everyday life like a phantom, killing women for years. That he prayed outside of schools, 
sorority houses, ski lodges, and that he slipped repeatedly through law enforcement's fingers. You know, the beats of his story, you know, make for good drama, which is, you know, here's a guy who escaped from a Colorado prison not once but twice. You know, who, who, who gets the opportunity to escape once, let alone twice? And he nearly got away the first time. That's next on Hunted, Inside Ted Bundy's Trail of Terror. thing I remember most is the long, straight, dark hair parted in the middle uh, was kind of a um, unifying factor in, in a bunch of murders of, of young women, even teenagers. To a certain extent, they, they looked like they were sisters. We didn't believe that she was anything other than a missing person. The more people we interviewed, the more concerned we got. It just, it did not make sense. Came back to Aspen and immediately was, was you know, a media, media star, small town, big fish. He, he wasn't manacled, he wasn't confined or restrained or anything. And he just jumped out the courthouse window. People showing up on horseback with bullet belts, what they call bandoleros, wrapped around their chest. and on horseback going off hunting Bundy. I mean, it was just it was just a bizarre scene. They would always leave out the part about Aspen, which I could not understand, because it was kind of really interesting how he escaped, you know, from the courthouse. I have got to keep myself together. I have got to stay calm. I've got to keep my presence of mind, because as long as I do that, I'm going to be with people. 